0: This is giving the game away, an attempt to shine light on areas of the modern sporting world that aren't talked about that much. We had the idea to do a podcast and we originally just said to each other, right, let's interview some sports people about their mindset for approaching elite sport. But as that idea has grown and come on, we've realised that there is just so much to be encapsulated in the world of modern sport that we could talk about. And so each person we interview will try and reflect a different corner of that world.
1: We've interviewed a range of athletes from a whole host of sports, including cricket, football, rugby, basketball and more. But we've also tried to speak to people from within sports in other areas such as lawyers and agents and broadcasters. And we hope that the interviews will provide an insight into areas of sport that you may not know that much about. So today we've got on jade Merritt, who's got such an interesting story he was brought up in wisconsin america before flying to england to chase the professional football dream he started off in the 12th tier for southall before getting scouted by watford eventually playing in the premier league and then going to the world cup with the united states it's really a mad story and we are very looking forward to hearing it
0: And even crazier when you consider that, just six months before playing in that World Cup, he damaged his eyes to the point where he was nearly blind. So it's such a good one for us to start our next series on, where we'll be filming every interview and be releasing them every Sunday for the next 10 weeks.
1: Hi, Jay. Hello. How are you doing?
2: Yeah, I'm doing very well, thank you. Yeah, live live in Vancouver. uh,
1: Looking good.
0: So it,
2: mountains, mountains in the sea, right here in in, in Van and in, in Canada, where I'm
0: residing now. So yeah. So it, and I, yeah, I also didn't know as well about um, us asking you to do it the day after Thanksgiving. I don't know how how many beers are consumed on Thanksgiving, or whether it would be the right time to do it. But <laughs> well, the, the good thing the good thing about living in Canada is that not
2: many people are partying right now. So it's uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah it's Amer- America. My family was down there, but again, of course, because I can't, uh, I couldn't go there um i didn't have to i didn't really celebrate it too much which is kind of not very cool but
0: uh, in a way um it's one of those things so yeah we'll see and on a sort of on a personal level as well um usually before i'm interviewing people or we do something like this i'll sort of speak to my dad who's a lifelong need united fan about who we're interviewing and things like that but with me interviewing you today i thought it was best me not bring it up because of all the pain that you'd caused him that day at the millennium
2: Always oh, Leeds fantasy. Yeah, I
0: love loves Leeds a bit too much. So I don't think I think it was best to not cause that family riff by bringing you up.
2: <laughs> That's we'll we'll tell them after the fact. It's always better after the fact, and I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll touch on that game anyway, just to give him a little a little shiver to the side. Yeah, a little
0: reminder. Yeah, of all the.
1: Yeah. the <laughs> Obviously, Joel's just touched on it. There, your one of your greatest highlights in your career was um, scoring at Millennium Stadium against Leeds in the playoff final. Um, And you've had a lot of good moments like that in your career. Um, But it'd be amazing to start at the beginning of your career. Um, You obviously were brought up in Green Bay in Wisconsin, which is obviously a well-known sporting place, but it's well-known for American football rather than soccer. Uh, So how did you actually get involved in soccer, or what we call football, um, as a young kid growing up in Green Bay?
2: Um, Well, I was kind of one of those footballers that was built as an athlete first and a footballer second. (laughs) So, you know, for me, it was uh, you know growing up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Everyone famously knows that the Green Bay Packers are our hometown team. You know, there's as many people in the stands, you know, on a Sunday in the NFL in Green Bay than there is in this in the town itself. So, you know, it it was kind of this unique place to grow up in, where, you know, I always had a, a kind of a small town feel, but you know, very much uh, on a larger scale because, you know, having a, an NFL franchise in your backyard is a pretty cool place to, to to grow up. And the heroes I got to grow up with were, you know, they, they, they weren't Johan Cruyff or Eric Cantona. They were, uh, you know, Brett Favre and, uh, and and guys like him. So, you know, I was I was taught the game of sports um, at a very young age, but it, it wasn't actually, actually soccer. And you know, my story is, is kind of unique in that way, whereas I was always kicking a ball since I was five. But, I, you know, again, I didn't, I didn't really play f- soccer, football on a, on a, on an everyday basis until I was 18 years old. So, you know, I, I was late to the game. Uh, but the good thing about me playing basketball, soccer, track, wrestling, I was all those, I was all those things until I was 18. So I, I was molded as an athlete and as a competitor first. But, you know, just like any 18-year-old in America, you get opportunities to go play at college. And, and, and that's usually the path. You know, there's not – as or at, that, at that time in 1998, there wasn't many, uh, you know, path to pros and there wasn't really many academy programs because the MLS was was brand new. Uh, there wasn't academy programs. There wasn't a youth system like like the UK is, is very so accustomed to. So, you know, I didn't come from that system. But in a way, it kind of – it almost became my greatest advantage because when I was – you know, I started playing at 18 at a, at a much higher level down in Chicago against really good players. And, you know, having that background in a bunch of other sports and basketball taught me how to defend, um, you know, track taught me how to compete 1v1 uh, and, and, and football is 11. So, you know, again, I had this mix of kind of lots of sports, lots of coaches, lots of, you know, unique individual kind of assets that I brought to the table as an athlete first. And then all of a sudden in 18, 19, I'm playing against good players and doing pretty well. But, you know, knowing that I still had so much to gain while still being able to be on a level playing field gave me the confidence at 22 to go like, okay, I know I didn't get drafted, mainly A, because I didn't come from those high performance programs. I'm a kid from a small town in Wisconsin. I wasn't getting picked to go play for the Chicago Fire or the LA Galaxy because I didn't come from those programs. And, and, and. So at 23, I had this crossroads. I was a designer. I, I went to school for product design, so I had a degree in design, and, and and had worked as a bartender, a landscaper, a school cleaner, you name it. And 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 ultimately, I I, I had all these skills and all these experiences. But I, I you know, I, I still had so much to give to the sport. And that's, you know, when I met my, my friend Kieran, who was from the UK. You know, I played with him in the sh- in Chicago for a summer, and he was moving back to London to live with his mom in Wembley. Funny you say it, Wembley earlier, but. Uh, the towers had just been taken down when, when they when they redid Wembley, so that's when I landed on the UK shores in two thousand two thousand four, and so, you know, I, I knew I had a lot of work to do, but I also knew that I I could still get a lot better, and so that got me landed, you know, in into the UK soccer system as a as a as a as a as a, a twelfth division footballer playing for Southtown South in the <laughs> Southall town out by out by uh, Heathrow Airport, so you know, I ended up being that person that, that had to do it the hard way, but really appreciated his journey along the way.
0: Yeah. and there, Well, there's obviously so many remarkable elements of your story, but another one that's even more remarkable is the fact that you, you weren't even a defender, were you, until you went to uni, until you went to college? That's right. Yeah. So,
2: you know, I was a forward, I was a goal scorer. Um, and again, I was an athlete first. So thankfully because I came from a smaller town and I didn't have all this ego built up within me, you know, when I got to university and I had a Yugoslavian coach that said, Hey, have you ever played in the back before? I think you could be a good defender. I was like, yeah. (laughs) Is it going to help me play? Mm -hmm. You know, is it going to help me see the field? And he says, yeah, of course, you know, like we're we're low on defenders. What do you think about giving it a shot? And, you know, funny enough, you know, as a basketball player, that was my job. My job was to shut down their their Michael Jordan on on the teams I play with. And and again, so I kind of had a defensive mentality built into, into my mindset. And I didn't know you could transfer that into sports at the time. I didn't know I could go from a defender mentality, but a goal scorer on the field into a, you know, uh, a, a center back that actually knew what a forward was going to do. And I knew forward tendencies because I used to be one. And I think all of those things really served me when I got to England. You know, I was a competitor. I understood how to defend. Um, I knew I had a lot of, a lot to work on, but again, I was an athlete. I was a competitor and, and both of those things really suit the
0: physicality of the English game. Yeah, definitely. And then So from uni you went through the three or four years um, at UIC and then as you said there was a friend of yours an English friend of yours you went back to Wembley and isn't it the case that you literally had a piece of Fulham headed paper with a little CV drawn up a little resume saying what skills you had and then from there it was a case of backpack around Europe and try and bang on as many doors and show the people the resume
2: that that's exactly right yeah when I landed and again first started to play for Southall uh Wembley's local scout for Arsenal in Fulham uh, was a guy named Henry Weatherly and uh he happened to be friends with Kieran the guy I went over there with uh, to the UK and 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 so you know Henry saw me play a couple games for Southall and 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 then me and Kieran were ready to get on the move so we basically he said hey Henry can you write us a a recommendation letter and and he had he had Fulham headed paper at his house. We wrote this handwritten letter. We got him laminated, and off we went on our European. Uh, we went to Bruges in Belgium. We went to Nice in France. We went to Germany. We went to Holland, um, and, and just basically rented bikes and drove them out to uh, out to training grounds all, all over Europe, and 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 tried to get tryouts and knock on doors and stay in hostels and do all that kind of stuff and. You know, not, not, to, not to anyone's surprise, we didn't really make it. <laughs> um, but for me, it, it allowed me to continue to get kind of uh, life money and, and figuring out what, what, I, what I really was and who I was. And it allowed me to really kind of understand the European football game because I did it. I was an American. I didn't, we, we weren't built from the, that culture. You know, we're built from sports. We're built from, you know, competition. But football, we were, we were way behind. And so for me, I look at that period of time for me as a great learning experience just to learn about the game in Europe and what it's like over there because it is so, so different. And and it's, you know, because then it's so cultural. It's just built into the everyday life of most countries in Europe. And, and, you know, Americans didn't understand that. So for me, it was really a nice time for me to understand what that was and also to understand kind of how big it can be. And in, in a way that inspired the shit out of me. I was so pumped to be able to be in that environment. You know, me like And as I remember, my first game was QPR Tranmere at Loftus Road uh, Then I went and watched as a spectator. And, and I, even in that small stadium, but just to have the fans right on top and chanting for the whole 93 minutes of this wave of, of, of ups and downs. And I was like, whoa, this is what football culture is. And I, and I was like, oh, OK, I got to stay here. I got to figure out, figure this out. And from then it was it was anything it took. And, and, and again, that famously uh, started in the, in, in, in the pitches of Southall Town, but ended with a
1: trial with, uh, with Watford. I think what's so amazing with your story is how you're so persistent and you were relentless in your striving for your ultimate goal, which is to play professional football, but at those moments when you didn't get drafted for the MLS or you came to England and you didn't get scouted, was there any point where you thought maybe I should go for another career or did you always believe in yourself that you could one day make it professional?
2: I mean, you always waver at times in that part of your journey. You know, when you start at the bottom of the barrel, you're always going to have a little bit of doubt because, you know, you haven't been picked. So you're not going to have the most confidence in the world to think that you are if you haven't. And so I think that was always the reality in my brain. That was always the reality that I was facing. But no one knows the power of you better than you. And, 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 and within that, you know, I knew that with limited experience, again, I had, I'd played full-time football for three and a half years you know i knew that i had a lot to give i knew i had a lot to learn but at the end of the day i knew that i could jump a lot of people if i got good training continued to keep the mindset Continued to work hard every day and put myself in the shop window in as many ways that i possibly could um you know going again in a a place like england that was is so concentrated the good thing about england is that within a four-hour radius you can see you know 96 teams and 200 professional scouts that's insane you know, that doesn't exist in America because America is massive and you got one state or one thing to, to worry about. And if you're not getting picked, then good luck. You're not going to go try out for Colorado United when you live in Wisconsin. It doesn't work that way. And so that's kind of the way that, that, that it worked for me when I landed on England. I saw that opportunity, but I, again, I knew that I had a lot of work to do, but also I knew
0: I had a lot to give. Mm. And so from, you played or did you play that for a year or so? And then wasn't it a case of then trying preseason with another side and then from there came a friendly where everything sort of fell into place and the stars aligned a bit. Yeah. So I had a good, se- I had a good season
2: with Southall town. The, my, my manager was there, was moving to Northwood for the next preseason. So he, he said, um, uh, Jay, come, why don't you come here? It's a ninth division team. Uh, why don't you come, why don't you come here? And he said, in, in, in the end of the uh, preseason, we got a, a friendly against Watford. Have you heard of them? And I, of course I had heard of them. And I hadn't seen them. I hadn't, I hadn't been to Vicarage Road at the time yet, but um, I knew they were a local club and that meant I could potentially stay in London which I was now accustomed to because I've been there for over a year and I, and I loved it I was living in Camden town uh, you know doing my thing because I you know I'm a big social person too I like, I like things outside of the game you know I'm not obsessed with with just the sport you know I'm kind of one of those life obsessed people because I've done a lot of things in my life and, and know that there's more to life than football but in a way it kind of created this perspective where all else fails if I don't make it I still get to live in London and and, and learn about life and that always kind of drove me too. just the ability to stay there for that reason as well and all those things really helped me kind of create a mindset where I was ready for it I was prepared for it but I I still had an open mind as to where it could go and um, you know when I when I got my trial with Watford it was with purpose you you know you, you don't think you're gonna go play in a world cup when you're about to walk on trial with Watford at the time but at the end of the day, it's like that's why I went there. I went there to England and slept on attic floors for over a year for that time, for that moment, for that 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 idea was that I could get a professional tryout and make it. And so then then when you get to those moments, you don't shit the bed and go home. You you make the most of it because you're ready, you're prepared, you've been visualized that moment for a bunch of times. And I remember they again, time will have it as as stories will have it. You know, they happen to put out the first team that day. They would have put out the reserve squad and I was playing against C-team forward, I probably wouldn't have made it. I probably wouldn't have got my shot then. Maybe I would have got it later, but, again, time would time would say that, you know, they put Bruce Dyer and Heider Helgeson out up front. You know, these guys are England, England and Icelandic internationals, and all of a sudden these non-league Americans playing up against those guys because Ray Lewington was so, you know, thankful that they got Scott Fitzgerald the year before, and he scored 14 goals and was like their second-leading goal scorer, so that was the friendly – that he wanted to repay North Northwood with, and so he's like, as a play, as a as a happy, hey, thanks guys, I'm gonna put out the first team, I'm gonna put out the good guys because that's what you guys deserve to see, mm-hmm. and so I got to play against them, and sure enough, Ray Ray Lewington always talks about the famous battle of me and Hyder that day, and and Hyder had to actually get out of his comfort zone and because he had this guy up his ass and going, what what's up, what's up with this dude, who is this guy? And so that allowed me to really have the platform for it to be seen in the way that I should have. And, and, and thankfully, that allowed enough to, uh, to get me the trial at Watford.
1: That seems to be a theme throughout your career is you're always seizing your big moments, seizing the opportunity. Like for a lot of people, they might have in that moment, the pressure might have overcome them a little bit. They might have got too nervous and maybe shied away from the challenge. But you actually relished it and you saw it as a golden opportunity for you to take the next step on your ladder towards professional football.
2: Yeah and you know and I think that mindset is really key to a journey story. You know if you're going to take the long road, if you're going to if you're going to do what everyone else thinks that you can't. You, 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 A, have to be ready to get punched in the face a bunch of times, and, and, and B, you got to be ready to, to make it when you get that opportunity that you've been waiting and working for so long. You know, you, you have to find that time and, and, and that moment. It's funny, that's what you know, I gave a TED Talk years ago at, at, at TED Vancouver, and, and, and that's what it was about. It was about these key moments that you've just touched on in my life where I had one opportunity to make the most. You know, Eminem says it in his famous Eight Miles song. It's like, when you got one moment, what are you going to do with it? You know what I mean? Are you ready for it? Are you going to you gonna knock it out of the park? Are you going to put the tail between your legs and walk away? You know what I mean? Like, And, and that's really where, you know, the key moments for journey stories happen. And, and for me, I was always ready for those because I thought about them for years. I, I was fit enough. I was strong enough. I put myself in that arena a million times before I actually got there. And that's, those moments is, is really how you, how you get
0: there. And another one of those moments was, in the game of Vicarage Road, it was you. You'd said how your coach had said to you, "Turn up at the ground," and you were. You said you had a disposable camera on you. You weren't exactly sure what was going to happen, and then you rock up and you find that your name is on the whiteboard. And you said you had an initial moment where you sort of went into a bit of a defence mechanism, or a bit well, like, "Why did the coach not tell me? You know, why didn't he let me know before?" And then, what was your mindset after that? You said you even went to the toilets and had that defence mechanism. Then, what was your mindset after that? Were you just feeling like this is my moment? I've got to take it really
2: yeah i mean it's funny when one of the most profound conversations i've ever had with myself was on a toilet at vicarage road <laughs> uh, it's pretty uh it's pretty interesting uh, to say the least but it it's entirely true you know and and um you know i had most trials as anyone knows that has as knowledgeable about the game is that when you're on trial you don't really train with the first team you train with the reserves and you get a couple games in, on the second team and 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 with the youth guys so that's pretty much all I had done for my week and a half that I had been with Watford. I'd had two reserve games. Um, I hadn't even trained with the first team yet. And all of a sudden, you know, Ray calls me into his office the day before the Real Zaragoza game, the last big friendly for, for Watford of that preseason. And they, uh, and he's like, oh, I'll come to the stadium tomorrow. Well, I heard you've been doing pretty well with Terry and the boys. Like we'll try to get you involved. So again, I'm thinking maybe I'll, maybe you didn't know that you'd start me at that point. Cause that was the day before, but you know, you're not really prepared for those moments either you know, there are, t- and that's what I mean about the face punches, you know, you're like, whoa, I didn't see that, but okay, I'm still here. You know what I mean? And that was what was one of them. It's like, I could, I could go there and I could tell them that I'm not ready. I could tell them that why did you, how did, why didn't you tell me I'm not, I'm not ready and be scared. Or you can go to the bathroom and have a conversation with yourself and realize that you've been sleeping on a floor for a year and a half for this moment. And, 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 and that, you know, this is what exactly what you've been waiting for. This is exactly what you've been preparing for for the last year and a half by doing these things putting yourself out of your comfort zone and facing these adversities that you faced to go and prove yourself right and, and and that's ultimately what what kind of the conversation said it was okay well you got your shot now take a breath take a shit do whatever you need to do <laughs> and uh and um and go out there and and, and 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 perform and and thankfully that's what i was able to do you know i was a little bit shaky i'd never played in a big stadium like that before uh, especially a, a full one and uh um you know again but when you're ready for the bright lights you're ready and, and i've always been kind of one of those person people that really likes to put himself in those lights and and see what happens because you know that's what it's all about it's, it's about those moments and about those things and you know all those people in the stands still want to be me. So why would you why would you not be confident in that? That's why that's how you take confidence. It's how you build a better mindset. That you, that you get to instead of you have to. And so I always talk about that as my tunnel moment. Of like, there are times when when you can when you can say, Oh God, I got, I have to go out there. Ray didn't tell me I'm gonna play against this De La Liga team. I have to do that. But the mindset says I get to go out against Real, Real Zaragoza. I get to go play next to Neil Cox, who played in the Premier League for. 300 games i get to be that guy so shut up and go go be awesome and that's kind of the way the way it kind of works in my brain when i would be in those big moments and again those moved throughout my whole career from you know playing in the premier league to playing in a world cup and you know again nothing changed with that mindset and again that mindset really served me throughout my whole career
1: i think it's really interesting what you say there and i think that's what makes someone particularly successful a high performing athlete is someone who can see an opportunity and not be like oh, this, this could be, I could embarrass myself or I could have a bad day here and it's gonna be really terrible. But it's to be able to reframe that and think, actually, no, this is a great opportunity. So for you, it was, it was a case of, no, I'm, I'm not gonna embarrass myself here. This is a great opportunity to get a contract, which is literally what I've been striving for my whole life. So that's just a really good mindset and that's a real high performing mindset that you've got there, it's so interesting. But also what I find really interesting is uh, your your manager, Lewington, he, Uh, obviously threw you massively in the deep end there, a massive baptism of fire. But it sounds like he had a great way of motivating you and testing you and getting the best out of you. And I think AD Booth, your next manager as well, did the same. So can you tell us a little bit about their leadership qualities, those two managers, and how they managed to get the best out of you?
2: Yeah, well, I think, again, both of them had a a profound impact on my career. You know, Ray found me. uh, And what I love and most respected about coaches like that and Bob Bradley, my national team manager was the same is that guys like them are willing to take chances on people. You know, there's some managers that are very strict within their ways. They got their boys and they do their thing. They're not really taking chances on too many people. And and I, I Ray Lewington was someone that took a chance on me. He saw something in me that I didn't see. And, you know, sometimes good managers have a little bit of a knack for that. And I think Ray did. I think Ray was able to do that in a lot of different ways and, um, you know, for him to take a chance on me and then stay with me uh, was was a huge part of, of of the journey. But I think eighty really brought me to the best player that I could be. Um, you know, me we both came from unforeseen circumstances. Uh, you know, if he famously came from a, a youth director position at Leeds, and all of a sudden he's thrust into a first team manager position, and he's younger than five guys in the locker room. You know, he was 34 years old when he got the job and we had Alec Chamberlain, Melky McKay, you know, Sean Dyche, like these guys were like 36, 37. And, you know, imagine being them and having a younger manager come in and tell you what to do. And after, and after the dude has zero experience in professional coaching. And so th- it was kind of this dynamic, like neither of us were supposed to be there, but both of us were, and it had so much positivity and energy for it that we were going to do it together. And he really empowered me to, to feel like that. And he empowered a lot of people, especially in that first season, those first two seasons where, you know, he really managed the people. He, and that's what 80s best, best managerial quality for me was. His ability to take us all as our individual pillars while creating a collective idea is, was really, I think, his greatest skill set. I think he really allowed, he allowed us to be ourselves, really allowed us to, you know, kind of be inspired by his belief in us. You know, and he used to, I always say like, he always used to do this thing after training every day, day. He'd grab one guy, put his arm around him and walk him around the pitch for, for one lap and talk about anything. And, you know, it'd be like, Hey, I thought you played like shit yesterday, but what's going on? <laughs> or it's, Hey, I thought you played great yesterday. Or, Hey, you just got here from America. I hear your, your story is crazy. What do you want to get out of it here? What do you want to be here? What kind of player do you want to be for this club? That's what, those were his conversations with me. And so for me as an American that didn't really know how he wanted to belong there, I was just happy to be there. It really kind of shifted my gear to say like, shit, I could be somebody at this club. I could, I could, it looks like my manager believes in me. So, you know, I maybe I could play next to Neil Cox. Maybe I could be the next Sean Dyche. You know what I mean? And me for me, that was a big thing. And, and, for me, you know, again, Sean got injured six weeks into that first season and and tore his groin was up for six weeks. I got five, five games in a row. And then he never saw the field and was gone by the end of that year. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't go there to take his job, but I went there for that opportunity. And and again, once I got it, I wasn't going to let it slip. And You know, I think managers see that in people and managers see that drive. And as I grew with my relationship with AD, you know, he saw that because of my story, because of my ability to relate to a lot of people from the guys that don't get picked from the bench to the guys that are scoring goals and being captains, you know, he saw that in me in a
0: lot of different ways and and really brought that out of me. It seems like belief is a massive thing in your story. And obviously AD had that as well. I've heard you say that at the start of that season, he said to you guys at the start of the season, right, we will be getting promoted and we'll, we want playoffs at the very least. And it must have been, like you said before, giving you so much confidence, the confidence that the manager has that belief in all of you.
2: Well, yeah, and, and it has to stem from that too. You know, and we did this cool thing that season or our promotion year. where We did this thing. Uh, I call it the circle mentality because I get, I get speaking engagements a lot on leadership and, and to youth programs and stuff. And I always talk about that year because it started as a belief from him we were pricked to go to the third division that year from every pundit in, in the UK t- thought we were going down. We just avoided relegation. We lost the first three games of the season. Ray Lewington gets fired. and We hire the youth leads leads youth director, you know, like we're not staying up and he walks in and goes in the first day we're going, but with this group in this locker room, we have enough to get to the premier league. And we're like, who is this cowboy? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't <laughs> know what, I don't know what's going on, but I'm looking at the other guys going like, who is this guy? You know, he can even pronounce his name. You know what I mean? Like, who is this guy? And, and, but, but in a way, I, we all learned to love that about 80. His belief was insane. His, his ability to inspire was very, very high level. And, you know, by the, by the middle of that season, we all believed it. But at the end of the tra- after training sessions on the Sundays, when we would come in, we'd all sit in a big circle in our training, in our training ground. So there'd be 30 chairs in the circle and every week that circle grew. Cause every week we sat in a circle and looked at each other and talked about our performances, talked about how we could improve. 80 would challenge us individually, but also we'd have a lot of conversations collectively. And that really, really allowed us to gain as, as a team. And, and, and really by the end of that season, we were an unstoppable force. We were a team again, going into the playoffs. We, you know, we crushed crystal palace, their place. We get a draw again, we, another clean sheet. And we go into the Leeds final with, you know, nothing but confidence in the Leeds that thought they were going to walk it. And, 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 and again, because of our belief system that had been built through that circle throughout the whole year,
0: you know, nothing was going to stop us. Mm. Well, I was, like I said before, I was there on that day and it did just, Leeds can be quite an intimidating team. You know, they've got such a big following. They're such an like, old, massive club. And it just seemed the two teams couldn't be further apart. It was just completely one-sided that day. Yeah, and, and I don't know what
2: color jersey you were wearing that day, if it was white or yellow, but <laughs> knowing your knowing your dad. But um, I, I think, yeah, for, for us, you know, you can – I always say we won that game in the tunnel. If you ever walk, look at the highlights from that game, they, they yeah. look at Watford, and we had this thing like – Throughout the playoffs, we had this thing, like, we had Jordan Jordan Stewart, our hype man. We had our big captains, like Gavin and, 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 and Malkey, these, these kind of pillars of strength. And then you had, like, the worker bees, like me, and some of the other guys, like, you know, Matt Spring and, and, and James Chambers. And then you had your key guys, you know, you, your thorns in the side, like Marlon King, Darius Henderson, um, you know, these kind of – and Ben Foster in the goal, you know what I mean? Like, we had all of the, the, the parts that were necessary, but no one believed in us, except we had – this incredible belief system ourselves. And we, we, when you believe in yourself, you don't need anybody else. And, and this was very much uh, what happened
1: in that, in that final. And when you scored that goal in the final and lifted the trophy at the end of the game, you, you won man of the match in the richest game in world football, did you just have a moment where you pinched yourself and thought two years ago, I was literally playing the seventh tier of English football and now I'm winning man of the match in the richest game of world football. Like this is what it's all about basically.
2: yeah yeah yes you have those moments and you know I guess for me that moment was extra special because I got to share it thankfully with a bunch of people in that stand that day you know it wasn't you know my parents hadn't come over very often you know this was the time where my whole family was over my brother was in town Um, you know they had never seen me play in that type of environment before to have them in the stands that day you know my original belief system you know and then have like I think I had like 37 tickets that I bought that day for all my non-league player friends, my coaches, everyone that I wanted there to help me enjoy that experience. And again, I'm a am someone that wants people there. I'm not embarrassed to play in front of people. I want them there because it makes me be inspired to impress them. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm there to, I'm there to win. I'm there to show them that I deserve to be here. And I think that was one of those moments where, you know, I was empowered by that, by the people in the stands that day. I was, I was, I wanted to get on the end of that corner kick. I was, you know, and you can say that, see the way that that had, that goal, you know, kind of took place. And I guess for me, that was that moment, you know, and, and that I've been waiting for, those are the moments that you, that you really dream about. And when you can be ready for them, it's amazing what that, that, they, that they can actually happen. And it's funny. I never actually saw my speech until about five or six months ago. I never watched the game, like I've watched the game, but not to the point where I got the interview on the field. I never heard it until basically six months ago. And that was 10 years ago, or sorry, 14 years ago. And it was just, again, I was, I was happy with what I said. And and basically it was along the lines of like, you know, dreams, dreams can come true if you, if you're, if you're ready for them. And, and, you know, I was so pleased to have so many people that support you along the way. Be able to enjoy those moments with you and, and and that's truly what that moment was it was i got to stand there with the ball and that was my moment but because i had a club that believed in me the fans that never that that, that helped will me to that environment to the coach that believed in me to my parents that started it all and, and and said yeah go jay we'll support you um in the best way that you can to the people that told me when i got to england that you could make it pro you know all of those pieces along the way are, are hugely part of the story
0: when you actually look at it and and and, and that's kind of those moments allow you to look at that hmm. so you have that final you're now a premier league footballer you're obviously now rubbing shoulders about john as well which is an added bonus how did it feel that summer knowing that you were then going to be playing in a couple of months time against the best players in the world and in the most competitive league in the world
2: I mean, it was crazy because again, that was 2006, so the World Cup is just about to start, and I'm watching the World Cup at a bar in Chicago, hammered with my friends, and and going, I'm playing against that guy next year. You know what I mean? Like that, that's wild. And and again, thankfully in America, no one really cared. You know what I mean? So I, I you know, again, if I would have been in England and doing that, they'd have been like, get out of here. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what do you mean? You got to play against men? You know, like. In a way, I'm sure they would have enjoyed it. But at the end of the day, like, I was in a place in America that was like, wow, I, I heard you're this, but no one really cares. So you can enjoy it. So I really enjoyed the, those moments because I was back at home with my friends and family that got to enjoy it with me. But the pressure wasn't on me yet. The pressure got to me when, when I landed back for preseason. And that's, you know, you don't realize it until you see Manchester United coming to Vicarage Road in your second game that you, that you know you're in the big time. And, and, and so for me, that was kind of – thankfully, I had an off season to kind of wrap my head around what that meant. And uh, and really kind of really start to refocus where I wanted to go, and that was to be a good Premier League player. And and, and to an end, that takes a whole new focus because the Premier League is a big time level, and it's a big shift. So you know that learning that that year in the Prem was it was such a great learning experience for me, and I, and I enjoyed every second of it. And um, you know those are the types of again the moments you live for.
1: Who was the toughest competitor you think you came up against? Obviously, you were in the Premier League during a time of great strikers like Drogba and Rooney, for example. Who do you, who do you reckon was you had the toughest battles with?
2: Um. What's well, funny? You said Drogba because he he was my he was my nemesis. He was the worst. I, I he asked me about one player. I got to play against Ronaldo. I got to play against Messi three times. Didier Drogba gave me the hardest time of any player that I played against because he was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. He could jump higher than me. He could hit it from twenty five. He could push it past you and run faster than you. And you could like. Wayne Rooney, Fernando Torres, these guys, I can, I can play with them. I can manipulate them. I can match them physically. I can match them competitively. So generally I did pretty well against guys like that, but I, Drogba was one of the few I walked off. You know, we, I don't know. if You guys remember we, we drew FA cup Chelsea three times in my career. And so I get to play against him a bunch, like four times in one year and he roasted us for a hat trick once he scored a goal, like in two of the other games. And, I just remember thinking, okay, there's a difference between being a pro and being world-class, and he was the one that really kind of first taught me that. Every time the
1: FA Cup draw comes and Chelsea gets drawn out, I bet you're there like, oh, <laughs> oh I'm not, not drug for again. <laughs> yeah. And then
2: we're like, oh, I hope they don't play him. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, are they going to play him? You know, those early round games, you know, like third round. You're like, oh, hopefully they don't play the big guns. And I was like, hopefully they don't play Drogba. Oh, crap, he's on it again. But, uh, yeah, again, maybe that was part of my mentality. I was scared to play against him.
0: I've heard, I've heard you say as well that the Premier League was... Potentially physically not as not as challenging, but mentally it was the most challenging thing you've done. It is, it is, and that's the difference. Because physically,
2: the championship is the hardest league in the world, in my opinion. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, it's a lot of elbows and a lot of you know shitty pitches and 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 and, and bad nasty people. You know what I mean? Like th- th- that's the championship. But the Premier League is. You know, for me, it's played in the final thirds. It's played in the boxes. And, and, and for a defender to be and match that mentality for 90 plus is really hard to do. And that's where I saw the biggest difference. And, you know, 90, 90 second minute, you got a guy like Dragwa hanging off your back shoulder as, you know, Solomon Kalu whips in the greatest cross you've ever seen, uh, you know, whipped around the defender's heads and right at to, to the pin post. And, you know, nine times out of 10, he puts that in the corner. We're in the championship or in the MLS where I finished my career maybe six times out of 10, that ball's going in. So again, that finite difference between the
1: levels is, 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 is very apparent in the Premier League. And so obviously, on the pitch, you were competing with some of the best and biggest players like Drogba, but then also off the pitch, you were hanging out with the biggest celebrities. Like, didn't you become quite friendly with Elton John, as Joel mentioned earlier?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the, you know, what a privilege, uh, in all honesty. You know, to have a guy like him that respects you is, is crazy. You know, he came to he came to Vancouver last year. I'm playing soccer with his kids in the field in Vancouver, and you know, his his sons are coming to movie premieres premieres with me and stuff like that. And you know, what's amazing how you can create a relationship with somebody like that. But the cool thing about Elton, knowing him over the years, is. He really respects footballers. He respects what we do, and, and he respects the terriers of, of Walter Football Club more than anything. And and to see that from someone that is that powerful and that and has that much star power is is really amazing. You know, to be a part of those. And have those relationships, for I always considered them as a privilege. But I also wasn't someone that was shying away from them. Oh, hey, Elton, I'm gonna go sit over here. I'd be like, Elton, what's up, dude? Like, here, let me come introduce you to the guys. Like, you know what I mean? And he appreciates that. He appreciates that kind of character. And you know, thankfully, i have because of my experience in a lot of different ways. I can I can own that character. I can be that character. And and and, and it's always uh, really proven to be really cool to be able to be in those situations and still. You know have an influence on the, on those kind of people and, and, and to really create relationship with them so I, I very much value that
0: relationship yeah definitely and then so so you had um you obviously have been then playing for Watford for a few years and then it was coming up to sort of around world cup time and obviously you want to be putting your name in the hat for a world cup spot and um, it's going to be the greatest sporting show um in the world and then it's well documented about an eye injury you had, which I think is just incredible. You bouncing back from that is an incredible story of resilience. So, could you just tell us a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, well, the eye, the eye story wasn't in the documentary because it would have made the documentary two hours long. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I don't, you don't, it's one of those kind of unsung stories, but for me, it's the craziest story of all. It, it is. It's how do you get an eye transplant, it's literally a corneal transplant? So, it's basically a window change of your eye through the, a dead person's window. Um, you know, and six months before the world cup. So I had to relearn how to see heal my eye and then really refocus on how to play at that level to get back in six months. And so that was, you know, again, when you, when you can't see it's this initial, Oh my God, like I may never play again, but then it was like, okay, now if you can, because the surgeon, thankfully Moorfield's hospital in London is one of the best eye, eye hospitals in the world. And, They have great surgeons there and he really called me says jay if we can get this three-month schedule down i can get you playing in three months and if you that gives you three months to to get ready and so you know we had a plan i sat in the dark for a month i couldn't let my my eye get angry so i couldn't go outside i couldn't look at tvs i couldn't uh, you know i had an eye patch and and a and a and a stationary bike that i had at my house and i would sit in the dark and ride the bike try to stay fit and visualize and be in pain and sat there for a month basically in the, in the dark by myself and uh and i really understood you know the power of the mental mental side because it's very very easy i could i could have gone dark and been like oh i'm not going to play in a world cup i may never play again i'm in pain this sucks but in a way you know i had to i had to use that time to you know again visualize and by the coach that kept, called me from the us and was like you know this is really crazy, but I'm uh, you're my guy. Like, we had just beat Spain. I was a coming out party, like, at the 2009 Confederations Cup. We lost to Brazil 3-2 in the final. And I was a huge part of those wins and games in the Confederations Cup against the world's best players. And so I had enough confidence from that 2009 season to be like, okay, if I can get fit, don't lose you where you've been. And so that was kind of my mindset. But, again, those first three months to heal, to get the surgery, and to kind of, again, I had to go in there the time I would leave my house is I'd go to the eye hospital and get my stitch that was in my eye adjusted with my eye pried open, adjusting the shape of my cornea. And so having your eyes manipulated, not being able to sleep at night, all these things really allowed my, this kind of me to build this resilience program even more so than I already had. And by the time I got to the, to the, to the time where I was playing for Watford, I was the captain of the team. So again, I was in a leadership role and, you know, again, I, I owe a lot of, of, of that, world cup experience to Malky. you know he, he was like you have a chance to play in a world cup i'm putting you in there i don't care if you're shit i don't care if you if you give away three goals i'm going to give you that opportunity and so he stuck with me and and let me play out that season um i think we finished mid-table or towards the bottom of the league that year but at the end of the day it was it gave me the opportunity to get fit again and, and start playing at a level where i could judge headers and things like that but the crazy part of that story goes where it's it's I make the team. I, I have to, I, I fly to IX Arena and I got to play against uh, Holland, who was ranked three in the world with Dirk Coit and, and Robin Van Persie up front and play at IX Arena. And that was my coming out party. And he said, I'm flying you to Amsterdam. If you can play and you play well, I'll take you to the World Cup. It's basically what he said to me. And so again, that same moment, that cross-section of, all right, am I ready for this? I don't know, but I'm, I, I'm as ready as I ever I can be so we'll go make it happen and and so yeah I got to play in that arena and after that game I think we lost 2-1 but I played well enough and he's like okay uh, you're not back yet but you got another two months to the World Cup but that was enough for me because you know again I brought other qualities to that team it wasn't just the, my play it was you know how I could relate to guys stay happy be positive environment in that environment and I think managers kind of always liked that about me and what I could bring to that team and so he you know he stuck with me and Bob Bradley, my coach, and and that allowed uh, the kind of opportunity to, to to be ready. And but the the, the crazy part is when I uh, after the season was done with Watford, I had a six week window till the World Cup started, and so I had two weeks off. And the surgeon told me he wants to take the stitch out, so he takes the stitch out, and I do these eye tests, and I'm good, I'm fit, I'm ready to go. But I start playing the warm up games. We played Turkey in Philadelphia, and then we played Australia when we landed in South Africa in 2010 as our last warm up game before the World Cup. And By the time we got to australia like i could like i couldn't judge headers i was missing balls i remember like trying to mark tim cahill on a corner kick and i was just i'm totally missing these balls i'm thinking to myself going what's going on i go to the eye doctor and my cornea had collapsed and and so i was back to legally blind in my right eye or sorry my left eye six days before the england game so i was back to legally blind in my left eye and i didn't have contacts of that strength that could help me see so again, talk about living with pressure, talk about living with like, you know, we got Wayne Rooney and who would be League player of the year that year for Man U, you know, I'm playing him in six days and I can't see. <laughs> so I'm, we're calling around all these high hospitals in Africa and they're like, no, we don't make contacts that strong. And, we, and so I call my, 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 my surgeon back in London. And he's like, yeah, we have them here. Um, but oh, how are we going to get them to you? And so we had them. Um, my agent was flying in the morning of the England game because he was English. And so, He was coming to that game so he landed on 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 south african shores um the the morning of the england game we had a motorcycle courier meet him grab the contacts and at 3 p.m the day of the england game i got to see again for the first time in six days and uh and played the best game in my life that night against wayne rooney was the best game i ever played on a soccer field
0: i think to be honest it might have been rob green you couldn't see the get that game
2: (laughs) as the story goes My agent had two players in the World Cup, me and Robert Green.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I think that is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. And you're right. That could be a documentary. That whole episode could be a documentary in its own right. Um, But what I think is amazing is if you have a foot, typical football injury, it might be you do Achilles, your Achilles, or ACL. With that, you know what the time span's is going to be. It might be three months, six months, but you know you're going to get better again. And you'll be able to get back on the pitch. But with yours, because it was such a new injury, which is quite rare, and you just had no idea if you're even going to be able to see again, let alone play football. Um, so it's just an amazing display of resilience for you to actually get through that and get back on the pitch and perform at a World Cup. But yeah, what, what was it like actually being in a World Cup? It must have been an amazing experience.
2: But I think when you play in a world cup and some of these big world tournaments, you know, thankfully the Confederations cup in 2009 in South Africa really helped us for that. You know, we came in knowing what South Africa was like. We'd been in all the stadiums. We'd played in a bunch of games there. So thankfully we were prepped with that. So I guess maybe I landed with a little bit more confidence. It wasn't as foreign to me. Um, so I used that to my advantage. Um, again, we had been there. We had won games there. We'd beat, we'd snapped Spain's winning streak. That I think they were 35 games unbeaten and we beat them in the semifinal to you know to to lose to brazil in the final 3-2 but you know those experience really helped prepare me for the for, for getting ready for a world cup and you know those types of environments they is when you really feel like the world of football is bigger than you you know and the world is watching and you know for every every 4 years the world stops and 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 watches and uh, you feel that when you play in a World Cup. You feel that when you walk around. You, you feel that when the helicopters are just taking you to the training ground because you've you got four cop cars before and out of the bus because, you know, you're the you're one of the 32 teams that made it. And, and and that means something. And, you know, for me, that moment, those those environments are, again, what you do it for. So, you know, I enjoy it as I always have uh, every second of it.
0: And it's not just like you came on as a sub or something for the World Cup. You played all 390 minutes as well, didn't you?
2: Yeah, there ended up being like I think only three of us on the in the in the squad that played every minute, and uh, I, I ended up being one of those people. And um, again, in my in my humble opinion, did did the most I could in that environment, and 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 got to play against you know some of the best players as well. And 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 again, that England game was my greatest moment of uh, 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 on a soccer field or on a football pitch. It's it's. It was one of those things that kind of meant a lot for me in a lot of different levels too because england was the country that took a chance on me too you know what i mean i always respected england and 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 watford and 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 kind of the fans for taking me under their wing because they didn't have to there's a lot of people they can take under their wings and and i know i always respected that about england and how they gave me my life as a professional and to play them in the first game of that big moment uh to play against those players that were always on the field with me and against me and you know play against Steven Gerrard who I used to watch before I even moved to the UK you know guys like him that really for me were the world's best players and then all of a sudden you're playing against them on the same field in the biggest sporting event on the planet really you know you can't you can't be scared of that opportunity you gotta you know again I was shouting to the hills that this is, this is incredible
1: it seems like you you really are the kind of guy who just seizes each of your moments and you don't shy away from them which is Probably why you've been so successful. But shortly after the World Cup, you actually uh, went in a change of direction. You actually came back to play in Vancouver and joined the MLS franchise, which had recently just been set up. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Because obviously it started off the first season was less good, but then you managed to turn it around. So. Again, it's another
2: yeah. I mean, coming back to the MLS for me was was always something I wanted to do you know and famously I you know I walked to England I wasn't someone that was a pro here and got bought by an English club to come there you know so I had never really had much experience in where I'm from or in North America in general and so for me to come back as a 30 year old I had a couple offers in the UK and, and, and in France and a couple other places after the World Cup but vancouver offered me the opportunity to be the first signing of an mls franchise you know and that that for me meant a lot you know again i'd grown into a leadership role with watford Um, you know i didn't want to be a captain of a team and then have to go sit on a bench just so i could make money you know what i mean like i don't care like i I didn't i didn't didn't ever care about that and for me it was about the role it was about the opportunity and you know i had a couple offers well yeah you can go to celtic but you know we can't promise you you're gonna play and i was like okay I don't, I don't care Then I'm not going to go. I want to be, I want to go there and continue my career in the trajectory that I was. And they offered me a leadership role to, to go and be a leader and to be the first signing and captain of a franchise for me was a, was a big opportunity. And, and, and it allowed me to get back to North America where I could be closer to my friends and friends and family. And, you know, because most of my career in the UK, is, uh, I loved every second of it, but I was there by myself. You know, I didn't, I didn't have my family with me. I didn't get to have my friends watch me on TV all the time. And there's something with that that comes with that experience. And I wanted to get that experience. I still never had had it at the time. I'd played for the US, but, you know, I hadn't played for, for any club in North America. So Vancouver allowed me that opportunity.
0: Great. And if we, if we go on to now sort of more the stuff you're doing um, at the moment, your uh, captain's camps. I think it's really, really good what you're doing in terms of, you said about how you know there's the outliers, there is the one percent, there's the LeBron James, there's the Tiger Woods, for example, and they're very specialized from very young and put on that path and they end up achieving it. But your camps, if I'm right, are more focused around sort of a a holistic experience, more of a well-rounded experience. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And in in captains'
2: camps, you know, they're notable for the you know the C that that hockey players wear in the chest or the C on the armband and and I was a captain for many years and so people think that it's that but it, you know captains camps are based on the, the, the whole idea of captaining your own ship it's this ability to as a young person and as a, as a growing growing young young adult is you know you that's what you those are the skills you need to learn you got to learn how to navigate your ship and and, and that's a skill set that's surrounding yourself with mentors that are good at things in front of you that's asking good questions it's being a good teammate it's all those types of things that really allow people to develop their own stories and and Captain's Camps was developed because I started to work for the White Caps and work for, you know, Watford and being an ambassador and talking to these broken 15-year-olds that got released from the clubs. And they're going, well, what am I going to do, Jay? You do a bunch of stuff. Can you help me get a job? Can you help me get a university scholarship? And I'm like, you guys are 16. You don't know. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know how to take care of yourself. You don't know how to fold your laundry, cook a dinner for your girlfriend. Like, you don't know how to do any of this stuff, you guys. And that's what I realized is that, like, these environments work we're happening all over the world in every youth program on the planet from music to sports to uh to art it, all of it's the same is that you get the lebron jameses that have really killed the curve and the lionel messi that killed the curve because there's no curve anymore it's you're either messy or you failed and it's such bullshit in all honesty and, and 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 this is this is really where i started to see a huge hole in the youth development system and and, and to go okay well I'm working for these clubs, I'm wearing their badge, but I'm not representing anything that I really care about. And that's youth development. It's about developing a youth that can take care of itself. And, and none, none of the programs are doing that for their kids. And none of the programs are really creating a program that's gonna holistically teach them that. And, and, and again, you're gonna learn how to be a footballer your whole life and how to bend the ball. What happens at 17 when you get told you're one of the 99%? You can't go bend the ball around the wall at university, can you? You know, maybe you can, but you're still gonna to have to get a job and, and then what? You know what I mean? Like, and so some of the real, the real pillars and the real problems that I saw weren't being fixed by these big programs. So I decided to start my own and that's really what we do. Um, I surround them with highly professional people in all forms of life. We do mentorship sessions with EA animators, Olympic athletes in other sports tech CEOs. And we always, we, we, every day we, I bring up some, one of those and, and we, and we do a lesson in their field. So not only do they come to soccer camp and we stay out and, and I tell stories like I've been telling you guys for the last hour and get these kids kids inspired to be better footballers. But in the end, they meet, again, an EA animator, a designer, a CEO, and a chef. And they're like, whoa, I can be all these things too? That's cool. And so then then we really create the program. And so then the program's five years old, but the cool part is that now I'm turning it into a digital program. So we actually, um, we signed EA as a, as a founding partner nine months ago. Uh, and I'm building an app that gamifies learning. So it takes mentors' stories, all those people I talk about, and we put it into bite-sized information and storytelling like Masterclass. I don't know if you guys know what that is online, but it's like the pros coach. So it's the same idea, but now it's geared towards teens. So 13s to 23s, we're telling people stories. We're giving bite-sized information. We're doing slap shot challenges with hockey players, bend bend the ball challenges with soccer players. We're doing draw the favorite alien with the animator. But now the kids get to participate with these pros and these people with the blue check marks and that have worked for these amazing companies and walk a mile in their shoes for a second. So by the time they're 18, they're just not so lost and they're not so, you know, they have more confidence because they've done a bunch of things, even through the digital world, which now we can build those bridges. You know, I don't have to be in the room anymore to affect a conversation. I can sit in my house and talk to you guys for an hour and affect a lot of people's conversations. So this is where we use technology to really bridge those gaps and also to use storytelling that anyone can create their own stories and that's truly really what rise and shine is now
1: i think it's really important work and it's really commendable what you're doing and it is so important because i mean one of the reasons you're so successful is because you had all those well-rounded experiences you went to college you studied design you played three different sports to a high standard so you had all of those skills that could feed into your football and also it gives you a backup if football doesn't go to plan as you say at 18 but then also for the ones that it does go to plan and they do become professional footballers, they need a career after football as well. So it's good to have these other interests, which they can fall back on as well.
2: Well, exactly. And you nailed it. And, and that's the, the, the big part of is of this whole kind of self belief system is where does it come from? You know, just believe in yourself for believing in yourself. If no one believes in you around you, eventually they're going to push you down and tell you that you're not good enough, that you're not smart enough, that you can't do it. That's what happens to most kids. And that's why they have mental health problems when they get out of these programs or when they finally see the light, when they're older, but the idea is, is that like those kids don't have mentors. They just get told how good they are all the time. Mentors tell you what's what it's like on both sides of the coin. And I, I was thankful to have a great support system in my life. I had great parents that supported me. I had a brother that tra- treated me like a cool brother. I had friends, you know, that 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 told me to go out and try because they believed in me. You know, support is really where it starts from because support is what creates the confidence to do it. And, and create those belief systems. And, you know, for me, it's just, you know, when you start to create these programs, you see that these kids need your support. And it's not just mine, it's I got a bunch of friends that do awesome stuff too. And they should, they and they want to support too, because anyone that has been mentored or have comes from a system of support or has created their own highly successful program in whatever world it is, you know, highly successful people will have the same mindset in a lot of different ways. And that's the really underlying cross sections of what we do at Rise and Shine, is that I tell you how I made it to soccer to a bunch of 14-year-old soccer players, but then so does an animator about being the best video game animator in the world. So does a CEO that sold their company for $40 million. So does a chef that cooked for you know, Gordon Ramsay and, and the queen when they come to Vancouver. Like These are the people that we're surrounding. And it's amazing that there'll be a time when no one believed in you. There'll be a time where I had to go within my belief system. There'll be a time where I had to work when no one else was around. There's a time when you know, I got to my level and I got my opportunity and I took it. It's amazing how all of us have those same stories, but until you actually surround these kids with all those characters, they don't understand it. So that's the plan is the plan is
0: you surround them with all these people and then they get to understand it. So then they can go and do it themselves. And there's the only way to find out what your passions are and what you truly want to do is actually by doing it And your camps, allow kids to do that. So that's great. Um, I'm obviously well aware of time. You're obviously a very busy person, but um, honestly, thanks so much for that last hour. You, not only do you have such an incredible and inspiring story, but you now helping kids basically find their own their own ways and do, have their own stories so yes i'm in admiration of that and thanks so much for the last hour
2: my pleasure thanks as always guys and as always i'm right here so if you need anything else let me know really
1: appreciate it Jay. really enjoyed that thanks, thanks a lot man. cheers, Jay. cheers. Pleasure.